it's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. There will come a time on the planet Earth when science and technology will be long forgotten. When humanity will rise from the ashes of nuclear holocaust. When wizards will rule the world. 20th Century Fox presents Wizards. A futuristic fantasy epic born in the mind of Ralph Bakshi, the master of animated magic. It is the story of two brothers, Avatar and Black Wolf, powerful wizards, and mortal enemies from the day they were born. Avatar, the good, who rules the peaceful kingdom of Montagar with wisdom. Science and technology were outlawed millions of years ago. And magic. Black Wolf, the future Fuhrer. Attention, behold! Who rediscovers the ancient secrets of propaganda. Technology and war and sends out his muted armies in a reign of unimaginable terror. In Wizards, you will also meet the lovely Princess Eleanor, the loyal elf, Weehawk, and Peace, Black Wolf's evil robot henchman who is transformed into an avenging instrument of justice. Wizards is a Tolkien world of fairies and elves, sorcerers, and demons. It is shot 10 million years from now against strange and huge panoramic settings. And it is more fantastic, more enchanting, and more powerful than anything you've seen before. Wizards, the ultimate futuristic fantasy epic. Welcome to The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Agatha Luz. Thank you for having me back. I'm looking forward to talking about a movie that I was not prepared to see. Also back in the booth is Mr. Vincenzo Natale. Hey, Mike. Sci-Fi July continues with a discussion of Ralph Bakshi's Wizards. Released in 1977, the film stars the voices of Bob Holt as Avatar and Jesse Wells as Eleanor. The film is an illuminating history bearing on the everlasting struggle for world supremacy fought between the powers of technology and magic, or something like that. We will be spoiling the film as we go along, so if you don't want anything ruined, go ahead, turn off the podcast, go watch the movie. Come on back. We'll still be here. So, Vincenzo, I'm so curious. When was the very first time you saw Wizards and what did you think? I'm old enough that I saw it in the theater in 1977. And I guess it was February. That's when it was released. I have to contextualize this a little bit because at that time, as an eight-year-old who loved comic books, there really wasn't anything out there for me. 
in the cinema. There was very little. Maybe the occasional Ray Harryhausen film was about as close as it got. But it was not a great time for kids' movies, and especially not a good time for animation. The 1970s were, even in the realm of Disney, were kind of dismal. Certainly nothing like Wizards. So when I saw that film, I, I really thought it was the best thing I'd ever seen. It was just, I was transported. And, and I had been primed for it because my dad, probably not long before that, had read The Lord of the Rings to me in its entirety out loud. And that really had an impact. So I think it was just, I was teed up for it. And then it sort of became the first in the one-two punch of Wizards and then Star Wars. And those two films are so, as I later discovered, are very intrinsically linked in terms of how they were made and how they were, Bakshi and George Lucas were working, not side by side, but in tandem with 20th Century Fox. And anyway, so just for me, it's like, it's a, a movie I really love and particularly loved at that time, but is heightened by just the fact of when it arrived on the scene and what it kind of meant to me at that moment culturally. It sort of felt like an inflection point where movies were shifted to a slightly different, some people may say a worse place, but a different place that for a young person like myself was really exciting and kind of ushered in a, a new era for me as a as a eight-year-old kid. And Agatha, I want to guess that this was a first time watch for you. Oh, no, no, no not at all. You no, Oh, okay. No, um, when you said I, you weren't prepared for it, I was curious about that. I should have spoken better wasn't prepared when I saw it as a teenager. So that's like 30 years ago. I'd already seen Crybaby and Forbidden Zone, and Susan Tyrell is actually what got me to get Wizards in the video store. I was not prepared for what this animation was. This broke open animation for me because at that point I was like, oh, they're kids' films. I haven't really seen any animation that's speaking to me as a teenager. And Wizards just just broke it all open, and I love adult animation. I think I like adult animation. I have a weird history of Ralph Bakshi. I told this on a episode of the Culture Cast about Fritz the Cat, that I was a refused admittance to Fritz the Cat when it was first out. I think I was six months old when it came out, and my folks were trying to take me to see it. Well, they weren't taking me. I was in the back seat asleep. And they were going to a drive-in and they refused entrance because this was an X-rated movie and there's a child in the car. Not that I would have known anything that was going on. I did eventually see Wizards on VHS and yeah, I had never seen anything like this before. Just, um, you know, I love how weird the animation was in the 1970s. Even some of the stuff that you see, the electric company or... Sesame Street or things like Allegro Non Tropo, just just bizarro stuff that they're doing. And this, yeah, really pushes that envelope, mixing your rotoscope stuff with um, live action, with your backgrounds of war footage, with animated characters over it. Really wild stuff. And yeah, this this movie really kind of puts the zap on your head. It's um unusual it tells a very familiar story you know we're definitely teed up for lord of the rings there are a lot of things in here where it's just like oh this is the battle of helm's deep oh this is you know that looks like Gollum. oh this is you know there are so many things where it's like all right yeah he's really doing this but he did actually 
had been working on this for at least three years, if not more, because the script that I got my hands on for War Wizards, which was the original title, was from 74. And it was interesting that he tells it more as a almost like prose rather than a script form. There's a lot of description in there. And then every once in a while you get little sections of dialogue. But yeah, it, it really, what he wrote the first time, what he wrote in 74, a lot of that is directly in what we see in 77. I did find the script so much different. And there were things in the script that helped me understand things that I didn't understand in the film. I'm thinking Eleanor's turn to evil didn't make sense to me in the movie, but the script let me know, oh, this is how she became corrupted. Bakshi, in some of the interviews, talks about the film, and I was like, oh, okay, this makes more sense. All right. And I don't think that we're dumb. I think that it's a little obtuse, but Definitely, he he knows the logic of the story, I think, way better than the audience does. I'm sure somebody like you know, Vincenzo, who's seen this movie a ton of times, has probably got this figured out way more than me, who's seen it maybe three, four times. That's about it. Honestly, I haven't seen it that many times. And in fact, I saw it that first time, which made a huge impression on me. But I was only eight, so I'm not sure that I saw it again, maybe until it was on DVD. Maybe I saw it on VHS. What's interesting about my experience with the movie is that I saw it on DVD probably in the late 90s, and I didn't really like it that much. It didn't, it, the memory, what it was, did not hold up to what I saw or what I perceived at that particular time. I was kind of taken out of by the goofiness of the animation. And I just remember being that cartoony, actually, and in a way that I thought was a little bit childish. What's interesting is watching it again more recently, and I had seen it once before this podcast, like a couple of years ago. And then because of the podcast, I just rewatched it. I feel like it's sort of come full circle. And now I'm really loving it again. And it has a little bit to do with maybe where our world is right now. Because the, you know, the two primary themes of the film are magic versus technology and then the resurgence of fascism. And I feel like, okay, well, the second one, pretty obvious. We're in a, a fascist resurgence right now in a really frightening way. Uh, that makes some of this stuff feel more poignant when you see it. And then also in wake of a, the arrival of AI, you know, that sort of kind of reared its artificial intelligence. So it's reared its, its head in the last six months. I really feel in a way that I never had before this, the notion of like what makes us human. And I would almost describe it as the magical part of our humanity, those part that you can't explain with a DNA sequence, like our, for lack of a better word, our souls, not that I actually believe in a soul, but that ineffable part of what makes us human is being challenged by this new technology in a really scary, but also enticing way. And the way that actually shows the propaganda films as being both just mesmerizing to these characters in this far future post-apocalyptic world, and and it also is a thing that becomes weaponized against them. And I feel like AI is sort of creating those, stirring those feelings in me. So suddenly seeing the film again, I was like, God, this feels bizarrely relevant right now. It, even though it feels very much rooted in its time in a wonderful way. It's funny, I've kind of come around to it. I, I also, I think when I saw the film the second time, you know, there's a little bit of a sloppiness to the storytelling. I don't mean that disrespectfully, but it just kind of, which bothered me at that time. Now I sort of enjoy it. Like the, the way 
Ralph Bakshi and this film and all of his films just kind of don't really care that much about like, you know, tying things together. It has more of a stream of consciousness, jazzy feel to it. And I kind of appreciate that now. Like I sort of, I think films have become almost antiseptic. They're so carefully stitched together. Like the Marvel films are just so synthetic in their storytelling. You look at something like Wizards is, ah, this kind of a relief. Not everything is explained and not every, you know, nook and cranny is like perfectly modeled and done. And, you know, the rawness of it really has an attraction to me now, which I, again, I think is, has to do with culturally where we are at the moment. Speaking to the story itself, and we talked about this during the Sgt. Pepper episode, it is told like stream of consciousness. It's a story. They're going to expand on what they want. There are going to be some side adventures. And it wraps up, all right, the good guys win, the bad guy loses. It's very much a fairy story. Well, literally a fairy story. Yeah, and it takes a little bit for us to even meet some of our main characters. We're introduced more, well, we're introduced to the world through Susan Tyrell as our narrator and getting this whole prologue going on. And I love the way that they have all of these different art styles because there's the style of the prologue. There's the, I don't know if you would, it's that sepia tone. It's just this kind of, it almost looks like it was drawn on like a a brown paper bag type of thing. It is a charcoal paper and it's probably actually called sepia tone. So it's uh, white charcoal and black charcoal. And I love that look. And I love the artistry of those characters that are being drawn, especially the elves look amazing on that for whatever reason. And just getting this whole idea of this world that has been torn apart. And like you had mentioned, Vincenzo, it's this post-apocalyptic thing. We are, I don't know how many years past World War III type of thing. And magic has started to come back into the world that was driven out by technology, kind of artsy fartsy type of airy fairy type of stuff with this narrative, but it works. It works very well for this. And I like that we have the different types of magical creatures. We've got all the mutants that were too close to the radiation and they are being controlled by one brother. And then the other brother is Seems like at one point he was probably a great wizard, but now it feels a little like he's gone to seed. Avatar is the good wizard. Black Wolf is the bad wizard. And then the good wizard, Avatar, he is so channeling Peter Falk and Columbo. I love it. And and luckily, Bakshi owns up to it. He's just like, oh yeah, I, I think Bakshi even knew Peter Falk and was just like, yeah, I wanted to work with Peter Falk. And he ends up casting Bob Holt and has him do the Peter Falk voice. It is so great to have basically Columbo solving this mystery, taking care of this you know, magical quest. It's great. In, in sort of a middle earth. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think, I think like there's something about the way he pastiches that's really exhilarating. Like even as an eight-year-old, when the Lenny Riefenstahl, you know, Triumph of the Will footage came on, it was mind-blowing to me. I love, I've always loved the combination of classic cell animation with, you know, still photography or with motion picture photography, live action motion picture photography. I think there's, and there's a kind of a Brechtian thing that happens when you do that because, you know, if you see a Walt Disney film, he'd never do that because he wants to bring you inside the fantasy. He doesn't want to break the fantasy. But if you look at 
any, maybe all of Bakshi's films, it always feels like he's making you aware of the medium and kind of questioning, not questioning the medium, but becoming cognizant of it. So you understand that it's making a statement about reality. And, you know, in our world, our, our physical photographic world, even though Wizards is this fantasy, which he, even though it doesn't really feel like it's for kids, is intended for kids in the way that only 1970s movies could be with prostitute fairies and gory battle scenes. It still feels like it's making those statements and it's very passionate, you know, in the social commentary. And that has to do with that pastiche element and the fact, yeah. And then, and then this, yeah. And then he'll just like, I mean, he clearly lifts, there's a character called uh, Cobalt 60, which was created by Von Bode's uh, underground comic book artist, who is exactly peace. Like it's the same, there isn't any attempt to change the character, almost looks identical. And he's, and you know, all the stuff from Lord of the Rings, like he seems in a very open and not kind of offensive way. He seems to like just be comfortable taking bits and pieces of things and slapping them together to create something new. And Peter Falk is part of that. Bakshi is a very experimental filmmaker, and he's just willing to throw everything at it. I mean, just in Wizards, we had rotoscopes, stock footage, traditional animation, airbrushed backgrounds, illustration, and then just film. He references classical film like Eisenstein's work. We have that throughout. And the idea behind a filmmaker taking Eisenstein's work, a man who was just revolutionary when it came to editing film, and directly referencing it in a movie where he is also experimenting, it's almost as if Bakshi's like, yes, I want to have this sort of effect on filmmaking. It's pretty ballsy to take Eisenstein. I know, isn't it? There's like a million, you know, movies with Met on horses that he could have rotoscoped, but he chose Alexander Dusky. I can start to recognize some of the footage that he took, especially, of course, Triumph of the Will, but so much I can't. And then there's even, there's stuff that he doesn't even try to obfuscate towards the end where it's just tanks and it's like obviously from another movie, but he's doing, you know, he's, he's making it his own. You know, it's almost like a found footage kind of thing where he's just like, okay, I need tanks. I'm going to use these tanks. And I also like the idea, too, of that being more filmic and so much of the evil people being rotoscoped because it feels like that's really speaking to, you know, the technology versus the magic of animation. I mean, animation, it's kind of magical, you know, just taking 12, 24, 20 pictures and stringing them together and through the magic of our eyes and 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 the way that the film camera puts these things together boom now we have characters that are moving and talking and dancing and doing whatever they're doing fucking all of these things and yeah that <laughs> yeah pg movie a kid's movie i love how back she keeps saying a kid's movie kid's movie and then you've got eleanor who basically just has her breasts hanging out and you can just see her nipples the entire time throughout the entire movie i'm like wow I don't know how you were at eight, but I, if I had seen this at 12, I probably would have been like, yeah, this is a really good movie. One of the things that I love about Eleanor is, is that she is just pure sexuality to the point where once she gets her full fairy magic, it, it generates through her body, but it all exits through her pelvic region. So she literally is just pure sexuality. But she's ballsy too, which actually had a 
relationship with Frank Frazetta, who, you know, I mean, the sexual politics of Frank Frazetta, <laughs> sure, not uh, in line with where we are right now, but his women were very powerful. Like, regardless of what you may think of uh, his approach to them, he respected them and they were very powerful figures. And and I feel like Bakshi's, I mean, they're both from Brooklyn, right? So uh, I feel like it's very similar. I agree, but I'd also like to argue that in this film, so many of the women are giving up or their power is stolen. So their power is either given up or stolen. Eleanor, who abdicates her throne, Avatar and Black Hawk's mother, who seems to have some sort of immaculate conception that tears her power out of her through the birth of her children. There's Black Hawk's wife, who, Black Wolf rather, Black Wolf's wife, who decides to flee her throne to save her child. So, and of course, the prostitutes and any of the women who have been enslaved by the fascist regime, they've also just, all of their power has been stripped away. He's clearly not on the side of the fascists. Exactly, yeah. So there's some of it where the, the abdication of power might be a sort of feminist moment of, I have made this choice. But the way I read it was really just a resignation to, I am about this man, this is my life, this guy, we're going to go on adventures instead of, I have this power, I'm going to keep claiming it. When I like that Avatar is supposed to teach Eleanor how to use her power, and he really doesn't. Not at all. Part of me thinks that if he teaches her, she's going to have that power and she's going to leave. I think he loves her as much as she loves him from the very beginning. And you mentioned the Cobalt 60 character who in this is, yeah, Peace or what's his other name? Necron 99. I love that character. I love that character design. I mean, that is the image that you see anytime somebody brings up wizards is this character. Yeah, right there on your shirt, Vincenzo. I think when I rented this when I was younger, I thought that this had something to do with the video game Joust because of the two-legged creature and just the character design and everything. And so I was a little surprised when it had nothing to do with Joust, but I, I actually looked up the history of that game. They don't make mention of Wizards whatsoever or Cobalt 60, but I know like the creatures that they're on, these two-legged horse-type creatures, they don't fly, but... Just even the body design and everything reminds me of those like ostriches that they're riding on in Joust, but maybe it was just synchronicity. Well, I also happen to have a Joust t-shirt, so make make of what that you will, what you will. But uh, I've spent so many hours on Jeff. It was such a frustrating game. My bird would always just slide right off the edge of one of those platforms that they were on. Oh. So I had the luck of playing Joust at a convention where it was unlocked. So I just played it for hours until we got to the end. Well, it's the only game I have on my iPad. Wow. I don't know why I have a thing for Joust. But there's something about, and I don't know where it, its origins are, maybe it is with Bon Bodhi, but a masked character, well, it must begin with Westerns, really, but like a science fictional masked character riding a creature is very powerful. Like, Again, with Star Wars, even though it's like barely seen in the film, one of the most, sort of, for me as a kid, the exciting images was a stormtrooper riding that giant lizard. And I think, you know, it carried through all until this day, like they're always reusing that basic concept. There's something thrilling about it. And that was the poster, of course, for Wizards. And that was absolutely what made me want to see it as a kid. 
It's such a striking character, such a striking image. And then actually in the in the story, he is an interesting character because he has this transformation. And, you know, he starts off as merciless automaton and then he becomes this somewhat ambiguous um, heroic figure. I kind of read the Necron 99 aspect of this as like a Manchurian candidate. And then when Peace, well, rather when Avatar rechristens him as Peace, he's still a weapon. He's still at the whim of someone else who needs to use him to further their own power trip. And I think also Peace acts as Gollum. He he literally is leading them to Mordor. And of course, Gollum comes up several times in the film itself. But Necron 99, just so striking, beautiful character design. I was disappointed it wasn't more focused on that character, honestly, the first time I saw it, because it was by far the best character design. Well, he's both Gollum and a golem. You know, he is there taking orders from one master and then eventually takes orders from another master. And then you don't know if you can trust him. And I like that whole wee hawk thing where he thinks that, you know, peace is turned. He's he's evil again. And but no, he's actually there to to save him. I kind of get the feeling that the script started with him because when you read the script, the first sequence is with him. And I wonder if that wasn't kind of the entry point for Bakshi when he was conceiving it. Well, when he comes into town and you've got those three very prostitutes and the way that he rides his steed into town, it does feel so spaghetti Western. It does feel so man with no name. And he kind of is the man with no name. And he, he speaks as much as Clint Eastwood does in those movies. Very limited dialogue, just kind of giving some warnings, you know, the whole bad fairy thing. And I like that he realizes that the fairies are going to screw them over. My God, that whole fairy sequence, they are just, it's kind of vicious way that these fairies are just attacking them. And you would think that they would be able to overpower them, no problem, but become a major obstacle in the film. And in the previous set of fairies, there's a famous cameo from Mark Hamill. Well, in you mentioned Susan Tyrell, and I talked about how she does the voiceover. She does the voices of so many characters. She's not just the voiceover person. She, she's the one fairy who's just like, they killed Sean, they killed Sean, the Mark Hamill character. And then she's also Blackhawks or Black Wolf's wife, her voice as well. And then I think there's a couple other like little bits and pieces where it's Susan Tyrell doing voices as well. So I'm like, there's only 12, 15 maybe credited voices on this. They are very judicious when it comes to reusing their actors with this. And even Bakshi doing a great voice, this whole, whole dumb sentry guy that he's doing. Um, oh, he had two. Oh, oh yeah. Tell me the other one. He was the one who was yelling about bricks, but he was also... That's right. Yeah. Yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, which... Which is the... When I was a kid, was the I thought it was the funniest thing I'd ever seen. I didn't know Fritz the Cat at that point, so I was a little confused, but I still thought it was funny. Well, it's that whole weird Vietnam flashback type of thing, too. Bakshi's like, well, this is probably, you know, or this is what people, when they would lose friends in the patties in Vietnam, they would be screaming and carrying on. But I love how the guy's completely insincere about it. <laughs> he just wants to go on a kill-crazy rampage to the point where he murders his buddy. Stepping on his lines... Yeah, it has a, just that madcap quality. It's so endearing and fun. The other thing that's fun about it is that it has all those different tones as well. Like it kind of switches from, you know, some fairly, I would say like 
effective fantasy mystical action sequence type stuff that you know would be comfortable in fire and ice or like a more straightforward fantasy and then it goes to this like total underground comics place of like or vaudeville type humor the avatar looks a little like mr b natural you know he does have that bizarro look like i don't i think maybe there's one shot where we get to see his eyes when he is so surprised that he jumps up and his hat flies off and then comes back down but otherwise we don't see his face really at all it's all beard and the beard's as tall as he is i mean that character design is just hilarious to me and he doesn't look at all like his brother he's just this little shrimpy guy wandering around the long trench coat type of thing and then you've got black hawk black wolf who's got that great Sauron beard and everything. And then those crazy skeleton arms with the real hands at the end. And I love too, that avatar wears gloves the whole time. He looks like a little Mickey mouse type of stand in. It's this weird contrast. I love it. Avatar is another character who's wearing a mask, even if that mask is just a low hat and his beard. There are so many characters wearing masks, hiding who they actually are. It's really fascinating. Well, especially the mayor or the president. Yeah, there's the, the president. Yeah. Literally wearing a clown mask. And it's quickly assassinated. I was very shocked when he got murdered right off the bat. Other than Eleanor and Weehawk, I mean, most characters are wearing some sort of mask or hat or something to to cover them up. I never picked up on that before, Agatha. Yeah, Weehawk is an... In- I think again, I don't want I want to keep like drawing out this comparison, but it's the same with Star Wars, which was somehow was captivating to me as a kid. Like the fact that you couldn't see Darth Vader's face and it was this like skull face that was inanimate was so intriguing. And I'm not, I mean, of course, that was probably influenced by Kabuki or you'd never seen anything like that before in a movie. And and I feel like those two films, it's weird because I, I don't know how much they knew about each other. But the fact that it was originally titled War Wizards, while George Lucas was making Star Wars, and and then George Lucas asked Ralph Faction to take the war out of his title, so the films wouldn't be confused. It just I, I totally believe in that union synchronicity synchronicity thing. I really think that there are these sort of cultural currents that people catch on to and and so to see those two things kind of being made in tandem and being released, you know, within what, three months of each other or something like that or less. It's really intriguing. And it one, they're both stories set in some kind of distant time, either distant past or distant future. And, you know, one just happens to be a space story and the other one is post-apocalyptic and earthbound. But they both have they both take that kind of fairy tale notion of like once upon a time and then collide it with science fiction. It's just so interesting to me because I, I, I'm sure they weren't aware of each other when they were written or designed, probably. Well, that weird thing, I don't know if this was true or not. I mean, they have images, they have drawings in this little documentary that's on the, the Blu-ray and the character design of Eleanor, she's got the big buns on her head. And I'm like, is that, is that real? Are you, are you fucking with me, Ralph? I imagine that they had conversations and influenced each other to some degree. I know that um, Lucas had recommended Hamill for the role of Sean. So they knew of each other at least enough to have that sort of conversation. 
And I do wonder how much of the idea of Star Wars and the masks and this whole black and white morality came out of Nixon scandals, how these leaders have been hiding behind themselves. They are now big bads. And how do you respond to that as a creative? How do you work with that? But then it is also Alexander Nevsky. That was, you know, the lesson I know about. Actually, I know George Lucas took from Alexander Nevsky is, you know, make make your villains inhuman dehumanize them by putting masks on their face so that you don't feel empathy when they're killed and they're more ferocious that way. So yeah, it's interesting. But obviously these guys are looking at the same stuff and and then they're, I don't know how much George Lucas was, but I have to assume he was both tied into the comic book world, like big influence. Again, Frank Frazetta, um, you know, but the, the person who illustrated those still drawing sequences at the beginning of Wizards is Mike Plug who was a Marvel comic book artist and would go on to do a lot of film work, including the most beautiful storyboards, I think, that have ever been done for uh, John Carpenter's The Thing, among many other things. But I, I feel like, and there's Jim Starlin, I guess, was involved, who's also a great Marvel comic book artist, very interesting guy. And uh, and then and then the backgrounds for Scorch, which is the Mordor-type land, were done by Ian Miller, who's a British a science fiction artist and fantasy artist who did a lot of book covers and things like that at that, that period. So I, I'm sure those guys were looking at the, you know, I'm sure that George Lucas and, and Ralph Bakshi were looking at those artists and pulling things from those artists. And, and you know, that was a small world at that time. Like it was a, I don't know if Comic-Con existed then, but if it did, it was a much, much smaller convention. This movie is such an assemblage. The idea that not having the money that he wanted to make these types of films, that he just grabs all of these different people and gives them free reign. Here's my idea. This is what I want. Go do it. Wizards is one of the most obvious examples of all of these creatives fusing a story together to tell us something we've never seen, a story we know but have never seen in this way. Well, it kind of reminds me of Hodorowski when he was putting together Dune and just all of those different creative types and he having that idea of, okay, I'm going to use this band to do the music for the Harkonnens. I'll use this band for the Atreides. I'll use this artist to design the Harkonnens. I'll use this artist to design the Atreides. And just doling those things out and being able to pull together. I mean, that's, that's really just so creative and so smart to do that. And the backgrounds, that Scorch stuff, these are not just thrown together things all of these backgrounds all of this art is just incredible but the details especially in those early parts of scorch where you're seeing all the lines and the destruction of the bridges and the cities and all that it just seems to go on forever and it looks so good and it works so well in motion yeah so there's no attempt to blend those backgrounds with those characters you know, it's it's like, again, it's in your face. It's telling you that it's a drawing, drawing attention to it, the fact that it's an illustration, which I think makes it so thrilling. Like, you would never do that in a Disney film. It all has to be uniform. And the score is like that, too. Like, composer Andrew Belling, who I, I wasn't familiar with. But, I mean, it's a, it mixes early synthesizer music with jazz, with rock. Like, it's this lovely, it's also a really lovely pastiche. It is a beautiful score. And it's, it's one of those scores you can listen to independently of the film itself. That doesn't always work, but this is a score that just gives you feelings that um, just 
creepy undercurrents. I love early ship scores. I love the the scene of Weehawk when he's got the colors and this kind of like cloud background going on. I mean, we've seen, you know, different things where you're like dropping oils into water and shooting it in slow motion and all this. And it feels a little bit like that, but just to take that and then add this animated character over it, who is going through this whole period of not knowing where he's at and he's lost and he's trying to find his way out and using the, that whole cloudscape to obfuscate his path. I thought that was terrific. I'm always interested in how a young generation, the contemporary generation responds to Star Wars. Cause I'm like, well, if you see Star Wars, you've seen probably before that you've seen like 50 things that have been influenced by Star Wars. So it can't possibly impact you in quite the same way. If you were alive in 1977, there was nothing, like nothing. You couldn't find fantasy or science fiction of that Tolkien nature of that. You know, you could find science, like depressing or cerebral science fiction. There's some of that out there, but you couldn't find Tolkien-esque fantasy or science fiction in the movie theater. It just didn't exist. And, or, you know, what you would find in a, a comic book. And, and so it was just, it really was um, a kind of mind blowing experience in that context. And they do the right thing too, which is to keep it pretty simple. You know, this is a fetch quest type of narrative where it's okay. We need to go destroy the secret weapon, the death star, whatever it is, the ring, you know, these things. But for this, what I love is the secret weapon is a movie projector. That that is the way talk about like, oh, there's a Black Wolf has this new secret weapon that he's going to use. And, you know, you've got those. It's almost like man on the street interviews with the elves. And they're just like, oh, yeah, we've we've uh, met these forces before. And they they come over here. We start shooting our arrows and they just turn tail and run. You know, here we are on the front lines, like they're literally in foxholes talking to the camera about how. You know, they, they aren't really worried about what is going on. And then there you've got Black Wolf turning on this movie projector and all of this Nazi imagery, all of this Blitzkrieg footage, all of this happening. And you've got these poor elves who just become hypnotized by it and just get wiped out by the mutants. I, I, what a smart thing. You know, you're talking about how Brechtian it is. The secret weapon is a movie projector. It's totally self-reflexive. I can't be the only one who thought, but what about all the vinegar syndrome on that film? What is going on that wouldn't play? It's a fantasy film, and I'm thinking about vinegar syndrome. Maybe they had somebody restoring it to 4K. I'm not sure. Yeah, of course. Going back to that whole idea of propaganda and disinformation, and again, it just feels like, yeah, it sounds awfully familiar, doesn't it? Like the most powerful weapon that's available to you isn't a gun, it's propaganda. And it just seems very au courant. In this case, it is a gun. Yeah, I was very surprised. Yeah. <laughs> At the very end, yes. I love, by the way, as a kid, I love that. Nothing up his sleeve. Just love that reveal. It was, oh, it ate it up. It was priceless. So Avatar is kind of a hypocrite when it comes to technology. He will just use it whenever he feels like it's necessary. We first meet him. He creates, out of magic, yes, but he creates a jukebox. So that's our first science weapon, the gun, of course. And my gosh, there was another one that was just a little shocking to me. 
because where did it come from? But yeah, he will use technology to his own advantages, which is probably the way technology should be used. And that might be the point of that in the story. But it did feel strange. I heard an interview with Ralph actually where he addressed that, where he said, I think I think I did. Well, anyway, the notion that, you know, sometimes you just got to use a gun. It's just you got to meet force with force and magic ain't going to do it. So just shoot the guy. Well, and I'd love to the whole commentary on commercial culture and that the church is just filled with all these logos and things, especially the two priests that are there in front of the CBS all seeing eye type of thing. And, you know, the, it's like they. The eye of Sauron. Yeah, yeah. They are just as hypocritical as, as Avatar, if not more, as far as th- they are in this place of worship and here they have all of this commercial stuff you know the your, your coca-cola logo you know your oscar statuette just all of these things are just all crammed into their church and they're just the most ineffectual priests ever the way that they have this whole ritual that they're doing it's like a song and dance number it reminds me like they're on a vaudeville stage especially when they take these sticks and they start hitting each other in the butt with the sticks and stuff. And I'm just like, what the hell is going on here? The way that they have all of these trappings of media, they've also absorbed every religion they can. So their rituals are now touching on Buddhism and Christianity and Judaism. So it's all just mushed together. And in the movie, it just means the church. So he doesn't have to show us 20 different leaders of different religions. It is just these two people representing world institutions. Which then gets blown up. And I'm so glad that this film isn't as offensive as some of Bakshi's other films. I mean, I mentioned Fritz the Cat. I mean, there's, there's of course, you know, the pigs, the cops that are all portrayed by pigs. There's, uh, there's a really offensive Jewish character in there, at least one, if not more, you know, with a movie before this was Coonskin, which we talked about on our uh, Song of the South episode. I mean, he could go out there. So he really reeled it back for this one. This is, you know, for kids. Major air quotes for that one. He's a cartoonist, so he can't resist being satirical. And, you know, the way like Star Wars appeals to everybody because it doesn't have a clear political position. Like, everyone thinks you're the rebels. doesn't matter who you are. Even if you're in the Empire, if you're watching that movie, you think you're one of the rebels. But carefully sidesteps any real political commentary, um, even though, you know, there's subtext for sure. But (laughs) Ralph actually wears it on his sleeve. Well, that Bakshi does wear a lot of things on his sleeve. And what seems like either a distaste or a jealousy of Disney model can't tell which it is. It might be a combination of the two. But in the commentary, he talked about the prostitute, the fairy prostitute scene being reminiscent of the Pinocchio scene in the town when he's drinking and smoking and being a very bad puppet. But the song that comes out of nowhere in Wizards, it took me ages to figure it out. It's his moment for the Disney song. This is the big song that the heroine is singing and children everywhere will be singing for the next six months. And the idea of everything stripped down to good and evil, and that's very Disney. It's a simple story of good and evil. I love that Bakshi just has 
his stories that he does because he did them both on the commentary and on that little documentary. And he just keeps talking about Disney animating uh, horses eating apples. And it took me the longest time to figure out maybe he was talking about the whole scene in Fantasia with all of the Pegasi or however you pluralize that. And it's just like, what the, what is he talking about? Horses eating apples? What's happening? And then finally I was like, oh yeah, because he, he talks about how Disney, and I don't know if this is true or not, if they had it out for him and they, they re-released Fantasia around the time of Wizards just to steal his box office. I'm like, okay. Then he also talked about how, speaking of Star Wars again, that he he was in the same office with George Lucas when Lucas was trying to renegotiate his back end for more money from Alan Ladd Jr., and eventually when, you know, wizards, as you said, came out in February, by the time it's May. And remember, this is the time when films were in theaters for a long time. By the time it's May, he starts getting pushed out of theaters because they realize that star Wars is a hit and need more theaters. You know, it's that whole thing of like, oh, William Friedkin's going to have the biggest hit of the summer with sorcerer. And then boom, he just gets knocked right out of the box office because that's when the Star Wars phenomenon really starts to take off. I feel sorry for Ralph, actually, because he had Wizards, which is really amazing. And then Star Wars just obliterated it, being a cultural event. And then he did Lord of the Rings. And in a weird way, whatever it was, 20, 30 years later, the Peter Jackson movies wiped out everyone's collective memory of his film. You know, like that was like the next Star Wars in a way. <laughs> like even his Lord of the Rings was kind of like swept under the rug by this behemoth that came after it. All he needed to do was to create a story about a young wizard like six months before Harry Potter came out. You know, he has an underdog persona, consciously or not, that is, you know, part of what makes this film so special. And you mentioned earlier, Mike, that, you know, there's this incredibly small cast. There's also an incredibly small crew. Like one guy did all of the backgrounds except, oh, actually two guys because Ian Miller did the Scorch backgrounds, but they did everything. They only, only a few animators did the entire movie. Probably part of his frustration or no irritation with Disney was that he never could have those resources. Like he would always trade, he would say anyway, creative freedom for a smaller budget, but then, you know, animation is so expensive and difficult to do that he just never had the luxury of, you know, being a Disney do it, you know, go golfing and probably into the studio and say yay or nay to all these things that these artists did. Ralph actually would go and illustrate the entire storyboard himself. He did everything himself, but it was exhausting. Did allow him to experiment to the point where he just gave an entire set of creatures to someone who had never animated before. Well, so I'm not going to have the money to do this with a big studio and all of the trappings I would love to have. I'm just going to experiment and, you know, she can do this. She can animate all of our, I think, the mutants is what she animated. I think that was Brenda Banks, it's who it also was, I think, one of the first female black animators. And it was her first film I, I'd seen her first feature film. So, yeah, it's pretty amazing. I love you get that little cameo from Bakshi's wife and daughter in the movie as well. It's such a sweet little moment where we're just kind of panning around the, the the landscape and you have this fairy mother and fairy daughter talking to each other. And that was Bakshi's wife and daughter at that point. 
yeah, they just feel very personal, very handmade. And I'm sure like the industrial approach to animation on one hand was like something that he was jealous of. On the other hand, you know, I think he kind of poo-pooed it. And, you know, when you look back at American animation in its earlier days, there really were two camps. There was the Disney camp and there was the Mac- Max Fleischer camp. And I'm pretty sure that Bakshi liked the Max Fleischer camp. I think that was because of a, a less corporate mentality to what they were producing. And they, of course, were the studio that didn't survive. The Disney studio kind of ate it up or you know, killed the competition, but they were the more subversive of the two studios. Yeah, we talked a lot on the um, Secret of Nim episode about Don Bluth and the way that he came out of things and just the whole, what was it, the the seven old men or something at Disney, the, the crew of old animators that just kind of didn't necessarily promote new talent. You know, and it was like, Tim Burton, here, do some pencil drawings on the Fox and the Hound, but, you know, not... The Fox and the Hound wasn't breaking any sort of barriers, you know? It was just like, all right, it's a story about a fox and a hound. Okay, and then you've got wizards over here just totally fucked up and just like, what the hell's going on? Like, I I, I didn't do any drugs while I was watching it, but I think it would have been a really good idea had I done that. Maybe. That could be nightmare fuel. No, absolutely. It completely comes out of the counterculture. That's why it's such a wonderful time capsule. You could never... Even if you tried, you couldn't create something like that now. Stitched into every frame, really. Yeah, people were so shocked. Remember all those years ago when the the new Mighty Mouse cartoon that Bakshi was working on, when he takes a flower and crushes it up and snorts it before he flies off? And it was like, oh my God, what are they teaching the children? It's like, this is Ralph it's Bakshi. flower power. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> One episode titled The Littlest Tramp sparked controversy when Mighty Mouse appeared to get high after inhaling crushed flowers. Parents and advocacy groups were outraged, and some stations even refused to air the episode. There were even calls for Bakshi to be fired. Bakshi eventually relented and removed the contentious scene, but he defended the episode, stating that the flowers symbolized joy and innocence, not drug use. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, being the man who made the first X-rated animated film, it's incredible. Because it really, animation, of course, except if you were in Europe or somewhere like that, it was solely for children. And so to kind of break that barrier was so interesting. And I agree with everything you've said about Fitz the Cat, but I like that movie. I like Heavy Traffic a lot. There's just no one who's ever really done that again. I mean, even with all the adult animation that exists now, he was the Martin Scorsese of animation. I mean, he was, and, he, and they was were his stories about the street were autobiographical. You know, that's that's where he came from. And if you look at uh, Hey Good Looking, like that's like animated Mean Streets. In fact, I think it even had some of the actors from Mean Streets in it. Yeah, I was really excited about this cast, the voice cast, to see so many people that had done voice work in the past and then a lot of people that just had the right voice apparently so i'm trying to remember if it was yeah david proval who does the voice of peace not a lot of lines but you know you look him up and you're just like yeah mean streets he was uhf he was in the shawshank redemption i mean this he had 111 credits to his name and i think he's still working he was on grace and frankie just last year so it's like Kind of neat to see some of these people. And of course, Susan Tyrell, who I keep bringing up just because I love her so much. And to hear her voice be that 
very serious narrator at the beginning. And I just, oh, it, it, it works so well. And just appreciate the work that she did in this so much. It's something wonderful that it narration is comes from a woman too. I mean, especially then I would think that would be an unconventional choice. You know, it's almost always the voice of God, which is a man, of course. And then, and then the way it began, it begins with a live action shot. Once again, kind of messing with our heads. The first shot of looks like a tablet. So at first I thought, well, this is a religious reference, but it's a Disney reference. The old school Disney films like Pinocchio, Cinderella always opened with those ornate illustrated and for wizards, we have a tablet, but it's the same idea. You're being kind of drawn into a fairy tale or a story. That's right. That's such a great observation. What do you guys think of the character of Weehawk? Because sometimes it feels like he doesn't fit with the rest of this. I thought in the commentary, heard in the commentary, he didn't care for Weehawk. You know, that was the one character he would decide. I never really struggled with it too much. Seemed like a good guy. I think Weehawk is there to just round out the party because we needed another fighter. Is I mean, This is a D&D campaign, basically. So we need all of our represented classes. That's true. That's very true. And it is, I mean, again, once again, it's Lord of the Rings, right? You just, you got to have an elf with you. And I love that we kind of end the whole movie on the joke, the whole thing of, uh, it's kind of a corny joke, but the whole thing of, you know, come on, let's make it. It's like, oh, no, I meant let's make it out of here. It's like, sure you did. So what do you guys take from the last word that Susan Tyrell says in the movie, Amen? For a film that is so critical of religion and organized religion specifically to end in Amen felt a little odd to me. I won't disagree. It felt kind of strange to me, too, but it did feel very final by having that last line, even though Ralph Bakshi on the commentary kept talking about the sequel. And when he kept saying Wizards 2, Wizards 2, and I thought he meant T-O-O, and then finally it dawned on me, he's like, no, no, he's talking about the potential sequel for this thing. I'd like to know where he would have gone. But maybe that maybe that's, you know, how you finish a fairy tale. I mean, it, it, does, it does have that quality to it. Again, I, it's the pastiche of it at all. And I I think the other thing I, that really resonated with me was, of course, like all the swastikas and talking about again in the kids' film, but, you know, appropriating that image, that symbol, and applying it to this fantasy context was, it's really um, unsettling, you know, because usually when you do something, you might evoke a swastika in a fantasy movie by having something that kind of reminds you of it, but you wouldn't use a swastika. <laughs> it's just, and and you know so it makes a point i mean it's it's very i don't think he does it in a blase way it's here's a man who remembers the second world war and one of the um i think the background painter was a combat photographer johnny vita and you know in world war ii so like the the horror of the war really resonates in this it doesn't feel like um you know it's making light of it it feels like we're just short of seeing the Trump concentration camps. It's very unsettling. Seeing it for the first time at about 15, 14, I, I remember, and I still feel when I see now just the horror that this imagery would come up in a cartoon. I'm now looking at a giant swastika. There's a character who, even though he's evil, is is saying Sigha. I mean, this is just 
horrifying stuff. And it's still so effective. It's like the Nazi demons in uh, American Werewolf. There's just something, you know, which to me is actually remains like one of the most disturbing scenes I think I've ever seen in a movie because of the weight that that carries. And you feel the filmmaker, you know, that you don't feel like the filmmakers are exploiting it. Like for an effect, you feel like they're making a statement about it. Like they're putting in there to really express their horror. And that's how it feels in this, you know, even though it's, once again, it's a kid's movie. You know, he's just saying, like, look out, fascism could come back at any time, which, again, I think is why it feels like when I see, you know, all these Christian white nationalists marching around, I'm like, oh, God, it's just that. So when I I think it's so interesting that the the change in our world from 1990, whatever it was, nine, when I saw the DVD of Wizards to now, all of that imagery means something else or it resonates in a different way than it ever had for me um, before. I mean, definitely. I saw it in the 90s for the first time as well. And even though I was struck and pretty horrified by the imagery, it didn't have the same sort of immediacy as it does now. Propaganda being the big weapon in this movie and knowing now what we're looking at, that propaganda is again just the major weapon. Yeah, it's it's aged well in that way. It really has. Like, I, I was kind of taken aback by how much I was like, wow, this is really that's funny how these things come around. But, you know, I growing up, like, I never thought I was never, I, I was worried about a lot of things. I wasn't really worried about fascists. <laughs> wasn't just, wasn't preoccupation with that. It's like, well, I think we got past that. <laughs> no, not at all. No, it's like coming back in a big way. And I was so scared for next year. And so I think that, you know, really a credit to Mr. Bakshi because, you know, it's so present in the film. I love the line, Hitler was dead again. Yeah, for now, until he comes back again. I mean, he is very much like Sauron, where you're just like, okay, they kill Morgoth, allegedly, but Sauron is even more of a threat. And then Sauron, they defeat him once, but no, he comes back again. And who knows what the sequel to Lord of the Rings will be if he's still out there, because it feels like evil never dies. You always have to be vigilant. Most animated films for kids now, I don't think you'd see animation like that. You know, they've become so, not even remotely. I mean, they're, and I don't mean to denigrate them because I, I have such respect for animators and what it takes to put something like that together. But they have become like these, I mean, if, if AI can write a script, it can, the first script they'll write would be an animated film for kids because they're just, they just feel like so cookie cutter, you know, like even the, the cadence of them. You could probably, there's probably an algorithm for the cadence of modern animated films for children. And so to see something like this, is like so more meaningful and disruptive in its nature is, yeah, feel, again, like yeah, it just sticks out in a really great way now. It's like, ah, it's like, <laughs> we need, we need, children need this right now. AI could write the script. AI could also design the characters and probably even do the animation stuff. I mean, you look at things like, that crazy Russian um, uh, Pinocchio that came out. Um, you know, you've got the Del Torre, you've got the Zemeckis, and then you've got this crazy Russian one where it just looks so freaking cheap. And it's like, how many people actually worked on this? Was this like one programmer? <laughs> you know, it doesn't look like they put any effort into it at all. And then you get Pauly Shore doing the voiceover and it becomes unintentionally question what? mark hilarious I don't know about this. oh yeah like he, i don't know about this oh i will send you some videos my friend it is pretty hilarious 
please send those my way too. This sounds incredible. Oh yeah, there's one moment where he's like skipping away and it's Pauly Shore literally saying, Let's go, Tibbot! Great adventures await! I mean, you're selling me on this film, you oh, know, yeah, right? Yeah, of course. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's one of those you have to see it to believe it. Yeah, I mean, and, and I mean, I did, again, there are some amazing kids animated films out there. So, but it does, yeah, bring the question of like, well, is there like another Ralph action out there? I mean, there, there's amazing animation. There's no question. You know, some absolutely stunning, brilliant stuff. You know, he also at that time, there just wasn't anybody doing it. Like, nope, you know, there was Disney kind of doing what they had done, but in a sort of more anemic way at that time. And then there was very cool, fringy stuff, like what you're saying, but, you know, what was on Sesame Street or, uh, you know, sort of experimental computer animation and things like that. But in the in mainstream commercial cinema, he was like the only other guy. He was, you know, almost an institution. And I don't know. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure if there's like an individual that exists like that anymore. I would say... There are people doing some very interesting things with computer animation. Like, as you said, is there somebody like a Bakshi? This guy isn't a Bakshi, but the filmmaker John Raffman, R-E-F-M-A-N, he did a movie called Dream Journal 2016 to 2019, and it is some of the most surrealistic animation. Just, it is way out there. And I saw that at the Chicago Underground Film Festival back in I'd say 2018. It was definitely pre-pandemic, and that thing will rock your world. It is really Ooh, out I there. I want to see that. Yeah, I I will um, see if I can dig that up and send it your way because it is it's something. It's it's it's. I can't say it's good. I can't say it's bad, but it's definitely something. Well, that's it. Like there's things like um, it's that wonderful movie. I I lost my body. Is that the title? I love that film, and I mean they're like really amazing things being done out there but i don't feel like there's in mainstream cinema there's not like that person like ralph actually crazy sounds was kind of a mainstream filmmaker and he was taken very seriously too i mean he was you know he was put side by side with martin scorsese in those days you know as a creative force in mainstream american cinema and um i don't know it's just isn't i mean animation is so extensive i think it's hard for someone like that to exists now but i don't yeah i don't think he's been replaced sadly but it doesn't feel like there's the next generation actually yeah it, it's really difficult for people to wrap their minds around adult animation and they think animated they think kids that's a shame but we definitely need someone who's willing to transgress and bring us more of this sort of animation take a risk absolutely i mean it feels like in the tv space that's more People are more comfortable with it. For some reason, in a theatrical space, even now, if you put out an animated film that was R-rated, it just won't happen. It's not permitted. There's what they're doing in Japan, but that's a whole different culture, a whole different world compared to what we're doing over here. I mean, other than that, who is it? Seth Rogen, that food fight or whatever that was, where it was like hot dogs having sex. I'm like, other than that, I can't think of the last even close to adult animation that's been released in the U.S. And and the tools are like so amazing now too. And uh, yeah, it's always it's frustrating. Like I don't understand. Sorry, we're I'm going off on a tangent, but I don't understand why there isn't a great animated horror. Movie. It just feels like you know why not? Like it could be so amazing, but 
There are definitely ones that rely on stop motion animation, but traditional animation, not at all that I can think of. Yeah, yeah, certainly that's right. Certainly not 2D. It was yeah, drawn animation. I just had a few other things to say about religion in this movie and wizards. The idea that their mother's name is Delilah, who is a biblical figure, and she sort of acts as our Mary with the an immaculate conception. We sort of, and I'm twisting it a bit, have a Cain and Abel situation with uh, Black Wolf and Avatar. It permeates. And if you can, if I can fully accept this as a valid theory, the amen at the very end would make sense. But there isn't enough there. Uh, but there's some. It's worth noting, I think. Oh, then, of course, we have Keith, who literally comes back from the dead. He was Necron, and now he is back from the dead. He dies during the assassination, but because of the way that he goes out, they figure, okay, the president's dead. And don't they say something about there are four more or something like that? I kept thinking that there were going to be like Necron 100, 101, 102 type of thing. Or are they saying that there's four good guys left that they need to murder? The script made it clear that the lights were each one of the people they wanted assassinated. But Black Wolf apparently thought the only one worth killing left was the president of the free states. And the self-destruct button would have been Necron's light in the film. So I think for the film, he slightly changed it. I think it's a cascading effect. Sometimes somebody hears a whisper of, oh, Disney's going to be doing a Pinocchio or DreamWorks or someone. So you have to rush out the one that you want to get there first. So maybe maybe people will confuse the two. All right, guys, let's go ahead and take a break. And we're going to play a preview for next week's show. Replicants are like any other machine. They're either a benefit or a hazard. But if they're a benefit, it's not my problem. That's right. We'll be back next week with the Russian version of Pinocchio. No, I'm kidding. Uh, that's right. We'll be back next week with a look at Blade Runner 2049. Until then, I want to thank my co-hosts, Vincenzo and Agatha. So, Agatha, what's happening with you? I'm still working on Cinema Spection Podcast with my husband. 
is, of course, a film discussion podcast. It can be found on www.cinemaspection.com. We're also on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. If you haven't heard what we do, I'd recommend starting with either Logan's Run or Crawl. Or, you know, if you don't enjoy me and you want to hear me be very, very unhappy, you can listen to any of our James Bond episodes. I get so mad. (laughs) They make me watch one every year. Every November for like the past five years, they they just torture me with a James Bond film. I know there are ones I like. They're much further down the line. Are you are you in Roger Moore realm right now? Well, we haven't gotten there yet, but I have seen Moonraker. Oh, you haven't gotten to Roger Moore yet? Oh Not yet. I'm going to be 60 and still doing these. And Vincenzo, what's happening with you? There Currently, there is a, a writer's guild strike. Uh, and I firmly believe there will then be a director's guild strike and a actor's SAG strike. So all my plans are going to waste, but um, I'm going to be prepping the next season of a show I'm involved with called The Peripheral, which is um, based on a wonderful William Gibson book that's on Amazon. And and then I have September 22nd, believe it or not, I, I wrote and illustrated a graphic novel uh, called Tech, which is being released by a, um, a really great publisher called Encyclopocalypse. And um, yeah, that comes out September 22nd. But they're doing a great job, and uh, yeah, and then you know, I just I just want to make movies. <laughs> That's all I like to do. So uh, yeah, I got a few of those. Hopefully, this Gibson project are, that you're working on is that because you did the um, storyboards for Jada Mamonic? Oh <laughs> no, no, not at all. Long ago, I had the very good fortune of, of working on uh, Johnny Mnemonic, the infamous cyberpunk film, as a storyboard artist, very briefly, and but I always loved William Gibson and I had attempted to make Neuromancer many years ago and failed, but I had the good fortune to get to know Mr. Gibson and kind of retain a online friendship. And um, he gave me this book that he wrote called The Peripheral, which I subsequently handed over to um, the producers of Westworld, Jonah Nolan and Lisa Joy, and they made it happen by some miracle. So that First eight episodes are on Amazon currently, and then we were renewed for a second season. So yeah, so that's in the works. That's fantastic. Oh, thank you. Yeah, no, it's very, very fortunate to be a part of that. Well, thank you again, folks, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. If you want to hear more of me shooting off my mouth, check out some of the other shows I work on. They're all available at weirdingwaymedia.com. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projection booth. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world.